This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Lord, there's work to be done in our hearts, and you know what we need. We thank you that you are our Heavenly Father, and you know our hearts through and through. We pray, God, that by your Spirit you would do a work in each of us, Lord. Lord, encouraging those who are down, Lord, giving hope to those who feel hopeless, Lord, giving energy to those who feel their strength is weakening, giving clarity, Lord, to those of us with questions or doubts. Oh, Lord, speak to our hearts as only you can, for you are the living God. Spirit of the living God, come move among us and cause your word to bear fruit in each of our lives, we pray for Christ's sake and in his name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat, and if you have a copy of God's Word, you can open to the Old Testament book of Ruth in chapter 3, Ruth chapter 3. If you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles, that's page 222. If you're joining us today, maybe you're visiting today, we are making our way through this beautiful story in the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, then the book of Ruth. The title of the message this morning is Mercy for the restless. I'll explain that. Chapter 1 was mercy for the empty because Naomi, a widow, and Ruth, uh, her widowed daughter-in-law, returned to Bethlehem. When she came back from that time of famine, having lost her husband and two sons, she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So in chapter 1, we saw mercy for the empty. Chapter 2 was mercy for the outsider because Ruth, the daughter-in-law, a Moabite woman in the area of Bethlehem, trusted God to whom she had bound herself when she said, your God shall be my God. And she sought the mercy of God going out into the fields. And there, in God's gracious providence, she was led to the part of a field belonging to a man named Boaz who was also a redeemer of that family. So chapter 2 was mercy for the outsiders. And that left us wondering what what comes next. Ruth, chapter 3, mercy for the restless. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say... I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. 
Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now, it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. And so she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize one another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. And so she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I told the folks in the first hour that uh, the longer I live, the more I understand uh, how weary uh, and difficult life can become. And the more I value uh, rest. Physical rest, yes, the cessation of labor, but more than that, uh, a state of being at rest, right? The condition of being at rest, though my problems aren't solved yet. The circumstances haven't changed yet. And the older I get, the more I feel that the restlessness that I can be overcome by because of the difficulties, the mounting problems, as it were, you know. I, didn't, I never thought like this in my 20s. I imagine some of you here, the younger, maybe not feel like this yet. But boy, do I feel it now. <laughs> I desire rest. And rest is an important biblical concept, a theological theme. <clears throat> there is a biblical theology of rest because it's one of those themes that stretches from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, right? On the seventh day, God rested from his labor. And the book of Hebrews then points to eternity and says, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Let's be diligent to be sure we enter into it, right? And when the people came to the promised land, this was to be a place of rest, a rest from slavery and bondage to Egypt and rest from their enemies, rest. And so this rest, which was figured both in the Sabbath rest, uh, the weekly rest of cessation of labor and rest in the promised land, that rest, that concept, that picture of rest always pointed forward, pointed forward to an eternal rest, a spiritual everlasting rest that was to be found in Christ uh, who redeems us not from bondage to Egypt, but from bondage to sin and its consequences. 
And rest is an important theme in this chapter. I don't know if you picked up on that. It starts this way, verse 1. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? That'll be well with you. And the Hebrew term she uses there for rest can mean a, a location like a home for you. Or it can refer to a condition, being at rest. And Naomi's already prayed this for, uh, for Ruth in chapter 1 when they were leaving Moab and they were on their way back. You may remember in verse 9, she said to both of her daughter-in-laws at that point were with her, she said, the Lord grant that you may find rest. That you may find rest. In chapter 3, verse 1, shall I not seek rest? Rest for you, my daughter-in-law. Then what's the last verse of this chapter say? The man will not rest. (laughs) But he will settle the matter today. Rest, rest, rest. And so while this story on the surface can seem to be, maybe we say, uh, what, a love story? What is this? A story between a man and woman, Boaz and Ruth? What it's really a story about, as the Bible speaks to us on different levels, it's about finding the rest of redemption at the feet of the Redeemer. Fighting, finding the rest of redemption at the feet of the Redeemer. I think that to some degree, all of us can understand the value of, of being at rest <clears throat> like they were beginning to experience in the security of what? God's provision for them, remember? And God's protection for them. I, we can all appreciate that. But I think it's harder to appreciate some of the more subtle points. As New Covenant believers, meaning as New Testament Christians, living as we do, where we live, and, and when we live, I think it's harder for us to understand and appreciate where Naomi and Ruth would find rest not spiritual rest, and, but find rest, that rest in their, in their experiences. Uh, material rest, physical rest. Where would they find this kind of rest? Which was a picture of spiritual rest. Well, in a husband. In a family. In a name. And in a piece of land. All of that... All of that was essential and precious and necessary for them. They were to be God's people living in God's place, under God's rule and blessing, the rest of the promised land. And this was found for for two widowed women in that ancient culture, in having a husband, having a name, having a family, and having a land, you see. A male protector and land was absolutely crucial in their time. That's just the way it was. And when Naomi prayed for, for them to find rest in chapter 1, in verse 9, where did she say, I hope you, I'll pray the Lord will give you rest in the house of her husband. <laughs> That's where you'll find that rest. And so this is harder for us to appreciate Uh, to some degree, because in ancient cultures, not just Israel now, but in ancient cultures, your identity, your value, and your security came from belonging to a family group, belonging to a family. You could be blessed to be called the son of so-and-so, the wife of so-and-so, the daughter of so-and-so, 
That could be a blessing, depending on who so-and-so was, right? But that was part of their identity. It was essential to them. But in our highly individualistic culture, our self-centered culture, identity is, is either associated with something you have accomplished, you have merited, you have earned, or, as we're told today, just something you go ahead and choose. Either way, identity is largely disconnected from what? The family group in our culture today. The covenant family in their culture, you see. In their day, an individual sacrificed and gave themselves for the betterment of what? Of the family, of the whole. And today, in many circles, the individual uses family for his or her own personal benefit and advancement. It is upside down. And that's why it's a little harder for us to grasp what's going on here in Ruth chapter 3. Land was essential, absolutely essential. They'd come into the, into the promised land under Joshua. And so after the partial conquest of the promised land, you remember the promised land was allotted by God to tribes and then clans and finally to families. Everyone had their inheritance in the land of promise. They were to be God's people in God's place experiencing the rest, rest from their enemies, being cared for and provided for by the Lord. And the land was generally passed down uh, from father to son, from generation to generation. And if a man died without any sons, there was a danger that the family name would be lost. The family name, the lineage, and eventually the land and so forth. There was other ways that a person could lose their land, lose their inheritance in the promised land, and that was that you could find yourself in such a financial mess that you ended up either selling part of it or, or all of it or just trying to get yourself out of a worse mess. And so God in his mercy, God in his mercy and love embedded in his law many remedies, many stipulations regarding how to treat debt and how to treat and handle inheritance with inheritances within families. Just as we saw last week that God embedded in his mercy a way of helping the widow and the, and the sojourner, sojourner by embedding in there the merciful law of gleaning. And well, God also embedded uh, remedies to uh, handle and help families who had been indebted and lost their inheritance and lost their, their land. He provided these remedies for keeping the land within a family group in order to provide and protect and have a future. Right. One of those laws, we refer to it in English as the law of the kinsman redeemer. Uh, these two words, kinsman and redeemer, are a translation of one Hebrew word, ga'el, or go'el. Kinsman <clears throat> is who the man is. He's a blood relative. He's kin, as we used to say. Redeemer is what he does. He redeems. He's a blood relative who redeems. What does redemption mean? It means to buy back something buy back something and so the redeemer could buy back or regain possession of land inheritance that had been lost he would pay the price of redemption 
And the Lord had embedded all this in his law in various places and in different uh, ways. I'll just read a little bit. Leviticus 25, verse 23. Don't need to turn there. It says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. He says, you're going to end up doing business deals, but you need to understand, this land is mine. (laughs) I gave it to you. You are supposed to keep it and stay on it. So if you sell it, it won't be forever, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And then verse 25, he says, if your brother, listen to this, he says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest Goel, his nearest redeemer, shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Buy it back. Bring it back into the family. Give them hope. Give them a future, you see. And there were other things that a redeemer could do. I won't go in that. So this is the law of the kinsman redeemer now there was another important remedy and that remedy was the law concerning leveret marriage now leveret is not a word that has to do with the tribe of levi it's based on the latin word lever which refers to brother-in-law and we've borrowed that into english leveret marriage or brother-in-law marriage and this only occurs in three places in the Old Testament. There is Genesis 38 and the account of Judah and Tamar, right? That whole scene. There is Deuteronomy 25 where the stipulations are written out. And the only other place it comes up is here in the book of Ruth. The lever of marriage essentially said this, that if a man died, if a man died without any sons, His brother was to take the widow as his wife, and the firstborn son of that union would become the heir of the dead man, the heir of the dead brother. And so that that line would live on, that name would live on, and that family group would would have hope and so forth, right? But I know that sounds strange, right? Catch your breath. But Deuteronomy 25 also notes that the law was not compulsory. Was not compulsory. We we can't miss that. It is not a duty to be forced upon the brother-in-law. He may decide not to perform his duty. But this would result in public denunciation and shame. But then that leaves the other question. What if the dead man didn't have a brother? And there is no brother-in-law, no, no lever marriage. Well, that's exactly the case in the book of Ruth, right? Elimelech died and his two sons, they have died. They had no, no uh, apparently, no other brothers. And so that is one of the contributions of the book of Ruth because the story of, of Boaz and Ruth, the story of Ruth demonstrates that a more distant relative, not just a brother-in-law, can do this. It's the only reason we know it, because of what we have here in the book of Ruth. So as strange as some of these things sound, I know, <laughs> uh, remember that they were, they were embedded by God in his law in that culture, in that, in that covenant people that to be remedies. They were designed to reduce poverty, to bring an end to bondage and slavery and debtor's prison. 
they were designed to give hope to widows and who'd lost their husbands or to poor orphans or those whose husbands had made bad decisions and all of that. And so with that as a background, kind of understanding a little bit more about what was going on in their time, let's make our way through this scene. Scene three, right? Boaz and Ruth. Uh, it begins with Naomi's plan, Naomi's plan for rest, the rest of redemption. In verses 1 through 5, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. You go down there incognito, <laughs> You sneak around and keep your eyes on what's happening, and when, when he lies down, you observe the place where he lies, and then you go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, this is a plan, we're told, right? Naomi's idea. Where was this rooted? Where was this plan being born in her heart? She seeks to move Ruth towards Boaz. And <clears throat> why is she feeling this way, thinking this way? Well, because she has now begun to warm up to the fact that God isn't out to destroy her. <laughs> and in chapter 2, remember, they needed a break. They needed something to happen, something good. And what happened was overwhelmingly good. The, the Lord in his providence led Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to that part of the field where this man Boaz uh, met her. And he showed overwhelming mercy and kindness to them, giving them all this food. And, and she saw the hand of God in that because not only did this provide for the meal, but this was a close relative. And she saw the hand of God of that. Remember chapter 2, verse 20, it says there, she said to her daughter-in-law, remember she came back with the food and told her, I, I, I worked in a field belonging to some guy called Boaz. <laughs> Bing, a bell went off. In verse 20, she says, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness is not forsaking the living or, forsaken the living or dead. And so she saw all that as a signal of what? God's chesed, God's loving kindness, his faithful love to his covenant people. God, maybe not, not be out to destroy me after all. Look how amazing all of this came together. And when you begin to experience God's mercy and you begin to understand the affections of the Heavenly Father in your life, that he truly loves you through his son, Jesus Christ, like Naomi, you can begin to be so self uh, less self-absorbed. She came back, remember, from Moab saying, Whoa, it's me. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet. Call me Mara. means bitterness. <laughs> I'm bitter. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me back absolutely empty, right? Never mind this daughter-in-law right here. And so she is beginning to see and experience the grace of God. She is tracing God's loving kindness, and this now makes her less self-absorbed. Me, me, me. Now it's, Ruth, you've been so wonderful to me. And God let this man into your life and our life. He must have a purpose in it. I, I want you to find rest, right? So she's becoming less focused. She wants Ruth to find what kind of rest? Well, <clears throat> the rest that comes 
from having a husband in that culture. Remember, said that's very important. It's the rest that, she wants her to have the rest that comes from being fully integrated into the family, into the people of God. Spiritually speaking, we might say she belongs to the people of God already, right? She's like Rahab the harlots or others who have bound themselves to the God of Israel. She said, your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. We said that was the work of grace in, in her heart. But, but to the people in Bethlehem, to, the, to others out there, who is she? She's an outsider still. She's that Moabite woman that's been, that Boaz has been given all this food to, you know? And so she wants her to find the rest of full integration into the people of God. And so she schemes up this plan. Now her plan has been both praised by some and criticized by others. Let me explain how. What does she do? She tells Ruth to bathe, to anoint herself. She's talking there about scented oils. I want you to clean up. Wash up, girl. <laughs> Put on some perfume, and then she says, put on her cloak. That's a word that can be translated dress. In some Bibles, it's translated dress. It's an outer garment. Then she says, I want you to sneak in there incognito into the area where the men of the village are working, where only the men of the village really go. And I want you to wait till they're getting done with their work and what happens down there at the threshing floor. The threshing floor... It's a place to party after you finished getting ready, after you got your work done. You know, you notice she said, let him eat, let him get merry. <laughs> and then you wait for him to fall asleep. Don't let anybody see that you're there. And you go in there and you lay down on his feet. You uncover his feet and lay down. He'll, he'll tell you what's next. <laughs> uh, some see that, well, first of all, I hope you see that as totally odd, right? <laughs> good, good. This... This is not the Christian way to find a husband, you know, <laughs> how to land a man, you know, that's, no. <laughs> Let it be said for the record. Good, you find this to be odd, okay. <laughs> but some see more than oddity here, you see, some see this as implying that Naomi's telling Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to go to this place and offer herself sexually to this man. You see, the threshing floor was a, a place known to be visited by prostitutes. And this was a time when, when men did what, they, what was right in their own eyes. This was a dangerous time. And prostitutes would free, frequent the threshing floor where the men were at the end of the day and working and drinking and being merry. And, and the threshing floor was outside of the, uh, the, of the village area because they wanted to be separate. It's a place where the wind would, would take away the chaff when they threw the grain up in the air. And so this whole language of uncovering his, his legs and all that and place yourself down there, the words that are used in the Hebrew are words that can have two different meanings. There's a little double entendre in there, you see. And so some see this as implying that Naomi's telling her to do something uh, that was risque. You know, they see impropriety here. They see this as go down there and be provoc uh, provocative to this man. Now some see no impropriety there. They say, you're taking those words that way. It shouldn't be that way. And there's nothing romantic about stinky feet. <laughs> so that's how some respond to this. Others say, you know, she, she's not to be criticized for what she planned, but in that sense, in that there was impropriety there. But she should be criticized for taking matters in her own hand. 
Shouldn't she have known there was a redeemer closer than Boaz? And if so, why is she trying to have her go around him and go straight to Boaz? Boaz stands out as the man says, we have to do what's right first. And yet Naomi says, you bypass that guy. You go throw yourself at the feet of this guy. And so some uh, see that as something that should be criticized about the plan, you know. Well, it's hard to criticize motives because we can't see the heart, right? But what is clear, I think, is this, is that both Boaz and Ruth are presented consistently in this whole story as what? Godly, worthy people. That word worthy is used for both of them. So I don't think we're supposed to see impropriety. I think that the author, again, this is a beautiful book and how it's written. The author wants to create some mental tension here, you know, by his ambiguity, using words that could go either way. He wants his Hebrew readers to, to read their way through the story and get to this part and go, what is this? <laughs> is this what I think it is? <laughs> and he wants them to go, no, no, let's read on. Let's see, is this what I think it is? And more than one scholar points out that Naomi could simply be referring to the fact that Ruth should demonstrate that she's done with her period of mourning. Uh, That that what she is telling her here is, you clean up and you take off the mourning clothes, you put on a dress, and you go demonstrate to this man who has been kind to you for 90 days, but he won't budge, (laughs) and you just let him know that you're done with mourning your husband and you're available. It could simply be that. And if we see it in that light or some light like that, I think that Naomi, rather than being uh, strictly criticized, really Naomi should be be commended in light of the whole picture uh, because she exercises faith. She exercises faith. I'm talking about Naomi and her, and her plan. She exercises faith in God's word in this way. She believes that God's remedies that he has written into his word are right and, and they should be acted upon. This man's a redeemer. This man already has shown great kindness to us in the gleaning. He's gone beyond what the law has written in giving you food that hadn't even fallen. And so she should be commended that she wants to act based upon, upon God's word and his remedies. And she believes the best about Boaz for sure. She, though Boaz, now you know, Boaz was not bound by law to have to marry Ruth. She believes Boaz will continue to act out of compassion and kindness. The kind of kindness he showed in chapter 2. She believes, though he's not bound to have to marry her, that he will will do what is noble. He'll do what is noble and compassionate and uh, accept this. Either way, either way, what she was asking Ruth to do called for a tremendous amount of courage (laughs) on Ruth's part. Tremendous. This, This plan could have gone hayward in a in a dozen, hey, we're in a dozen ways, right? It could have just gone bad. First of all, she could have been considered a harlot. Here she comes to the threshing floor, the place known to, to be visited by prostitutes. She comes sneaking in the night. She comes all, you know, all dolled up, as it were. And secondly, she's a Moabite woman. And what were the Moabite women known in Israel for having led the the Israelite men into sexual immorality? I could have gone wrong there. 
It could have been all misunderstood. She could have been really criticized. Who knows what would have happened to her. She, she was sneaking in the middle of the night like that. She could have run into the wrong kind of man too. And Boaz, Boaz could possibly misrepresent all that she's doing. He could react negatively, right? No woman asks a man to marry them in that culture for, by and far. And no servant would speak to a master like that. No outsider would come to a man of dignity like that in the town and, and, and propose something like this. So, so there was great risk involved. What would Boaz really think? And was, was Boaz ready? Was he really ready to take on the responsibility of a Moabite wife as a noble, worthy man in Bethlehem, you see? Would he risk his reputation? So it, was, it took a lot of courage is what I'm trying to say, right? It took courage and faith to say what she says in verse 5. Here's, Neil, here's Ruth's reply. All that you say, I will do. Yeah. She's a woman of faith too, right? All that you say, I will do. Where does this courage come from? Where does this, this faith come from? The willingness to act out on something like that. It comes from the same place Naomi's plan came from, which was what? She, Ruth has already firsthand experienced the, God's chesed, God's loving kindness through this man Boaz. She understands that this was a remedy written into the law of God. And here's another remedy that's part of the law of God. This man is a redeemer. And she is ready to step out in faith and do what her mother told her to do, despite all the risks. All that you say, I will do, you see. It was Jonathan Prime who wrote, Nothing gives greater hope for the future than past experiences of God's love and favor. And she had a whole lot of it. We think she had 90 days of it in the dual harvest. 90 days of God's favor, day in, day out. And she's tasted that, you see. They came to Bethlehem from Moab. What did they need? They needed mercy. Remember last week, they were utterly dependent on someone doing something merciful for them. They needed a break. They had no control of the outcomes. And they saw, she saw, Ruth saw, when Boaz said, you come sit next to me. Dip your bread in the wine with me. And so Ruth, having seen that, she has faith that God, through Boaz, will continue to extend mercy to him, to her. There's a lot of hymns about this. We sing them frequently. Here's a hymn we don't sing, but it's written by John Newton. It was, it's called Be Gone, Be Gone, Unbelief. One verse says, His love in time past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. And can he have taught me to trust in his name and this far have brought me to put me to shame? No. No, and we as Christians, as new covenant believers, we know. Shall not he who gave us Christ, his son, right, freely along with him give us all things? God has already taken care of our worst problem. We should trust him, should we not? We know his mercy in the cross. We have tasted much, much more of the Father's affection for us. If we doubt his fa fatherly love, we, we come back to the cross. 
This is not the main point of the story, but before I move on from Naomi's plan, I just want to make that point. You see, it's certainly something we should take to heart because we can't always see how things are going to turn out if we apply a principle of God's word, just like they could know. We don't know how it's, what's going to happen. We don't know how it'll work out. We don't control the outcomes. But here it is. Here's God's word. Here's a principle. And, and some of us are just stop right there. We're, we're at a dead end because we can't see which outcome is going to be mine, you see. And Ruth didn't know what outcome was going to be hers, but she trusted in the loving kindness and mercy of God, whom she had come to know and embrace, and she was ready to step out in faith. I think that sometimes some of us can be so afraid of making mistakes that we end up doing nothing. When as those who have seen the mercy of God, we should be acting upon the promises of God and living by faith for the righteous live by faith. And so where you see the word of God speaking to you and you've seen God's mercy and kindness to you, build on it instead of sitting around waiting for the outcome. Trust God. You need to make decisions about your business life. You need to make decisions about your family life. You need to make decisions about other relationships. How has God's word addressed it? You don't know the outcome. You don't know what will happen, but you need to trust his word, beloved, and walk by faith. Don't end up doing nothing and being paralyzed. And so that's Naomi's plan for rest. And then comes Ruth's plea, excuse me, there comes uh, Ruth's plea for rest. She's also a woman of faith. She goes, we've already noted that. She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, some say that, that this means that he was in a drunken stupor. That's not exactly what it says at all. Again, he's presented as what? A worthy man throughout this whole story. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. This could provide some privacy. It could also be he's protecting the path of thieves coming up to his pile of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. She did exactly as Naomi told her. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. I would do, right? <laughs> Behold, there's a woman on my feet. <laughs> Who are you, he says to her, in the dark, right? And she answered, I am Ruth. Your servant, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I want you to notice that she goes beyond what Naomi planned. Naomi didn't tell her to say these things. She said, you lie down there. And and essentially what Naomi was saying was, you let the man take the lead here. That's how it's done around here. (laughs) See what he says. See what he tells you when he wakes up and finds you at his feet. (laughs) But she goes beyond that. She speaks for herself. At this moment, she is ready to venture uh, by faith in the mercy of God that is going to come through this man. He says, who are you? She says, I am Ruth. You wonder if she thought for a few moments. Yes, who am I? I'm a widow. I'm an outsider. Uh, I'm a Moabite woman. I'm a beggar. Gleaner. She says, I am Ruth. Then she says, your servant. Then she says, spread your wings over your servant. Why? For you are a redeemer. Naomi told her none of that. And again, the 
the Hebrew of this section is, is beautiful. Again, the way the author writes, he uses words that are purposely ambiguous that can be, have different meanings to make you think of two different things. One Hebrew scholar uh, says about this word she uses, which here it says wings, right? That word, wing, uh, he says about it, he says, it is gloriously ambiguous. <laughs> you see, because that word is used elsewhere to refer to a corner of a garment. The corner of a garment. Cover me with your garment. It was used, uh, it was used of God and his marriage to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 16, which we think would have been written later, but we understand this, that, that there in Ezekiel 16, 8, it's used when Yahweh covered Israel when he found her naked. And he threw over her the corner of his garment uh, and took her as his own, his bride. And so the word became associated with cover me, cover me in the sense of let's share your covering. Let's, this is marriage, you see. But the word also means wing. <laughs> the word also means wing, and it's the exact same word that Boaz himself, according to the author, had used from his lips in chapter 2. In chapter 2, when he met, when he met uh, uh, Ruth in uh, verse 12, and uh, he heard of her kindness, he said, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so the author wants us here in this echo to hear, to, in a sense, to feel for Boaz that what he's hearing from her, she's saying, you said I came to be covered uh, under God's wings and you pray that God would bless me. Well, you be the answer to your own prayer. You cover me with your wings. <laughs> wow. That's kind of forward, huh? <laughs> you be the answer to your prayer for me that I came to seek refuge under God's wings. You said, may he reward me for that. Will you spread your wings over me? And so though the word is, is not, the word marriage is not in this text, most everyone sees this as a, a marriage proposal, a request. Redeem me, take me as your wife, cover me. And we know that marriage is a concept that also, like rest, has a theology all the way across the Bible. We know that God, in creation, he ordained marriage. He created marriage as a union between a man and a woman, solemnized with vows. And we're told in the book of Ephesians by the Apostle Paul that e even at that moment when marriage was created by God, that then it was, this, it was designed to be a portrait of a spiritual marriage, an eternal marriage between God, Christ, the groom, and the church. And so at this moment, when we read this as New Covenant believers, remember, we read all Scripture in light of all scripture. And so when we understand that this is a marriage proposal going on here, the Christological pointers are starting to come on, right? There, more lights are coming on. They're getting clearer and clearer. And it's not that Ruth would have grasped all that. I don't mean to put that in the mind of Ruth. We're not saying that Ruth understood or saw all of these things. But we know that the divine author has placed these things in Scripture hundreds of years before the time of the Messiah. 
so that we, upon whom the age has come, we would see how this pointed to, to the Messiah. And so Boaz, we can say here that Boaz is clearly now a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, is a, he prefigures Jesus. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. Our kinsman made in the flesh like us, our redeemer, he went to the cross. We're told that we have been sold into bondage under slavery to sin and that he came to redeem us. And so it's clear that this is what the scripture, the divine author would want you and me to take from this and begin to see. It really is a beautiful picture, I think. I think Ruth's plea, cover me. If we look at that as a marriage, uh, I do, right? If we, if we see that, it, it's an illustration of what is both uh, involved in both becoming a Christian and being a Christian. It's coming to God on that level and answering that question, who are you? I'm Tony. I'm Jim. I'm Mary. I'm Stephanie. Your servant. Cover me. Cover my sin. Cover me with your wings for you are the redeemer. Only you can cover my sins. Beautiful picture. She's seeking the rest of redemption at the feet of the redeemer. Yeah? What a picture. What a picture. What it means to find rest in the redemption that's been accomplished by Christ our redeemer on the cross. The one who says to us, remember we pointed out last week, it's Christ who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Cover me. I'll cover you. Just beautiful. I hope you hear your own name in that. Who are you? Can you hear your own name in that? Who are you? I'm Jimmy. I'm here, your servant. Cover me, Lord. Cover me, all my sin. For you are a redeemer. Well, back to the story. At this moment, it'd be one of those uh, commercial breaks, right? Where you're going, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? The girl threw herself at him. <laughs> what is he going to do? I mean, Boaz is a worthy man. You think he's going to take her to be a, his wife, a Moabite woman? What's going to happen here? That's the tension you're supposed to feel, right? You're, I, I want you to appreciate how bold and how non-traditional this was in that time, in that culture. This was this was radical to do something like this. And so we're waiting, we're waiting. What's going to happen? And Boaz responds, verse 10, he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. And everyone goes, whoo, yes. <laughs> All right. The romance lives on. Next phase. <laughs> All right. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. 
and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Don't worry about being a Moabite. A tremendous response. I'm sure that was just a great relief. He doesn't take offense at what happened. He knew her heart. And he commended her kindness. And he, again, the author uses the word chesed, the loving kindness, the faithful love. And he says, what you're doing right now is a greater, has said, a greater loving kindness than your first kindness. What was the first kindness? Her willingness to leave her own people, her own land, uh, her own parents, we found out, and come to a place she did not know in order to care for her mother-in-law. That was something. Huh? That was the first kindness. He says, this kindness is greater than that kindness. And what is this kindness? It's not that you... You chose me. It's, it's that you, you who were not bound by any, any law to have to marry me or any redeemer. You, you who could have married a young man, a rich man, a poor, whatever. You were free. You're a mobile. You could do whatever you want. But you, for the sake of what? For the sake of family. Because she mentions you are a redeemer. There's her motive. And he says... What you've done here, being willing to marry me, an older man, because you want to bring redemption to Naomi and the family, that kindness is greater than the first one. He says, wow, what nobility, huh? We're to see there the, the essence of character, nobility. A great kindness. She saw again in God's word the remedy. And it was a remedy for her mother-in-law in particular and the family name that she had got herself involved in and she chooses that above her own personal um, potentials. And next comes Boaz, this pledge of rest, right? And how he responds to her when he says, may you be blessed of the Lord my daughter. Do not fear, verse 11, I will do for you all that you ask. You ask to be covered, I will cover you. You ask to be redeemed and have your family redeemed, I will redeem. I'll do everything that you're asking me. For all my fellow townsmen know you're a worthy woman. I remind you, if you weren't here the first week, that in the, um, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth follows the book of Proverbs. It doesn't follow... Uh, judges. And the connection there is between Proverbs 31, the excellent wife. This is the exact phrase. An excellent wife who can find, says Proverbs 31, right? And this is the exact phrase. A worthy woman uh, is the same Hebrew phrase. And so he says, everyone in town knows that though you're mobile, you are a worthy woman. But I want you to ask yourself if in your conscience, You've come to that place of assurance in the gospel where when you ask God to forgive you, that in essence what you heard from Christ, and this is what you believe, all that you ask, I will do. Do not fear. All that you ask, I will do. All your sins forgiven, cleansed forever, wiped out, I'll walk with you 
as your Redeemer the rest of your existence. You need to have that sense of peace and understanding that you have come to Christ. Whatever it is you've done in your life, you see, let's be clear here about what it is to throw yourself at the feet of the Redeemer. You come to Christ, you throw yourself at His feet. Whatever it is you've done, however bad it's been, however secret it's been, however long it's been that you've sinned in this way, when you seek mercy from the Redeemer and you, you say, you respond to who are you, say, I, I'm here. Cover me. What you are hearing in the gospel is, fear not. I will do everything that you ask of me. I hope you understand that the grace of God in Christ our Redeemer is greater than all our sin. Amen? And if you're hesitating to throw yourself at the feet of the Redeemer because you feel or you think that it's been too long or it's too bad or you have this secret thing that you have in your heart or you think I have a wrong something here, a stain, a problem. You understand, listen, there is no sin that would keep you from him being able to cover you. His grace is greater than our sin. You repent of your sin, turn to him. But then, right when we all think the next thing is, and they were happily ever married ever after, right? Married and they went happy, happily ever after, right? And they got in a little coach and... <laughs> what the author does, what, what happens here in this story, a new tension is introduced. I will redeem you. But there is another. <laughs> there's, one, there's one closer than I am. And what he's saying is, this is what we're learning from the book of Ruth, that there was an order that a distant relative and so forth could uh, fulfill elaborate marriage. And, and so he says, there's one that's closer than I. And if he decides to, um, to redeem you, then let him do it. That's good. But if he doesn't, then I will. And what are we to see here? We're to see again a worthy man. Listen to this again very carefully. A worthy man from Bethlehem who receives outsiders, who overwhelmingly extends the mercy of protection and provision and then fulfills the law before he redeems. There's the law that needs to be kept. And then I'll redeem you. Again, a, a picture of our Lord Jesus. That's his pledge. I will redeem you. And as a sign of his pledge, he loads her up with barley, right? We don't know how much that is again. Some of these ancient measurements are... Are, are, are impossible to know for sure. Again, I picture that big Costco bag of rice. She's making her way home, man. Once again, this noble, generous man has loaded her up with food, and he said, and this is a pledge, and we should hear again the echoes here of things he says. This is a pledge of the fact that if this man doesn't redeem you, I will. I want you to go back to your house. I don't want you to go empty-handed to Naomi. What did Naomi say when she came there? I came empty he says, well, don't you go empty-handed back to Naomi. So she makes her way back with all that food on her shoulders. and She makes her way home. Verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? What's interesting here, I point this out, is that in the Hebrew, it's actually the exact same phrase, who are you? And translators try to decide what's really being emphasized here. But it's the same words that Boaz said to her. 
Again, I think the author wants us to pick up these subtleties and hear these echoes. You know, a man in the middle of the night that she came to and placed all her hope in the fact that will he act nobly, he said to her, who are you? And then she comes home to her mother-in-law and she says, who, who are you? Are you Ruth the lonely Moabite widow or Ruth the, the engaged woman with a pledge in your heart? Who are you? And, and Ruth tells her everything that happened and shows her all the food and tells her that he did, didn't want me to come back empty-handed to you. And then Naomi finishes. Verse 18 said, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, uh, but will settle the matter today. So what is this about? It's about finding rest, the rest of redemption, at the feet of the redeemed. Ruth has thrown herself at the feet of Boaz. He is a figure of Christ, type of Christ. He can give her the rest she longs for in her context, family, husband, a name, a future, right? As believers, as Christians, we understand that God is the one who calls us. God is the one who woos us by the Holy Spirit. We're told by Jesus that no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. But when we hear the call, where do we go? We go to the feet of Christ. We go to the feet of the Redeemer, and we cast ourselves at his feet. We trust wholeheartedly in the, in the finished work of Christ. And if you're not quite yet convinced that really is this a picture of Christ, you go through the Gospels and over and over in the Gospels, where do we find people who have come to Christ? We find them at his feet. At his feet. When you come to Christ, if you have come to Christ, you're like that woman who came up to him in the midst of religious people who couldn't be honest about who they were, who played games, the Pharisees. And Luke 7 records that event, verse 37, Behold, and they were in the house of the Pharisees. There's Jesus with a bunch of religious people and a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisees' house, she came right in there. She brought an alabaster flask of, anoint, of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Mm -hmm. Those who have been forgiven much love much, right? And you understand what that whatever it is you've done with your life, that Christ died for it, he suffered for it, and he's covered it. There should be some of this in there, huh, in your heart. Gratefulness. You see, when you come to him, you find rest, rest from having to hide. She was probably a prostitute. 
You find rest from having to hide, having to pretend you're something you're not. You find rest from playing games and being two-faced and telling everybody everything's fine when you know what's really going on in your life. You know what you've really done. And that whole game that we can play, when you, when you finally find the rest at the foot of the Redeemer, you understand that you are forgiven, you are covered, you are completely belonging to Him, and all is white clean in the eyes of God. You are justified, you are as white as snow in the eyes of God. When you come to that, you see, you, you find the rest of no longer having to hide and pretend you're something you're not. I remember when, when the Lord... Co- reached into my soul and saved me some 40 plus years ago when I first found that rest on that night I remember going to Sherry a few few weeks later and to share the gospel with her because she wasn't a Christian yet and it's almost like she asked me who are you and I said I'll tell you who I've been this is what I did to you I abused you I treated you wrong this is who I am but I've been redeemed. I've been washed. And so could you. She came to faith that night. See, when you come to the Redeemer and you sit at his feet, you, again, you could get the rest of of, of being real. And you should experience that as a Christian, being able to talk about your struggles because everyone has them. And when you come to him, you also rest from striving to be good enough, loved enough, because you know his love. When I came to the Lord and, and, and he freed me and redeemed me, I don't know so much that I was immediately like the, the woman at his feet. I was more like another person that was found at the feet of Jesus who had been saved I was more like the uh, Gerardine demoniac. Really. A man troubled with demons. Filled with sin. And remember this demoniac comes to Jesus and Jesus casts the demons out of this man? And he was running around naked like an idiot? A wild man? dominated by evil, and then everyone in the village heard something happen. Luke chapter 8, that's more like me. Luke chapter 8, verse 35 says, the people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. (laughs) And it says the people were afraid, just like my friends were. What happened to you? That was more like me. But coming to Christ and coming to the Redeemer is not just, and sitting at his feet, that, that may be a picture, a portrait of conversion, but it's also what it means to live as a Christian, beloved. There was someone else who sat at his feet who already had faith, and that person was Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And she was seated at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. While Martha was consumed with the weariness of life, with the problems unsolved, the things going crazy, and she did not take the time. And she missed out on the best thing, which was what? Listening to the Savior and sitting at his feet. 
We need to be like Mary there, you see. And, and come to the Redeemer day in, day out. Yeah. This living like a Christian, finding rest at the feet of Christ. Are you at rest? We're going to sing a song now. It goes like this. Weary, burdened wanderer, there is rest for thee at the feet of Jesus in his love so free. Let's, let's sing that. Lord, thank you for this. Song.